Hello and welcome to another episode of New Narrative's Political Agenda with me, PJ Thumb. I am wearing a brown batik shirt with green and red accents and sitting at a black table with three other people and we're in front of a big map of Southeast Asia. My pronouns are he, him. And joining us today, Shah Taha and Saza Faradila, who are going to talk to us about the practice of female genital cutting, especially in the Singapore context. As always, if you enjoy the work that we're doing, if you enjoy this podcast, please do support New Narrative. You can go to newnarrative.com slash join uh, to join as a member. We do very much need your support. Or you can also donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. And to learn more about New Narrative, please go to newnarrative.com slash hello. And now, Subash. Okay, so we're recording this on the 12th of December uh, 2020, but this is going to be aired on the 5th of February uh, 2021. And so tomorrow, for those of you who are listening on the day this drops, is the International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation. And so it is extremely, incredibly important uh, that we talk about this, and it's very appropriate that we have uh, two people here today to uh, talk to us, especially about the practice in the Singaporean context. But first, joining me as always, my co-host, uh, Editor-in-Chief of Wake Up Singapore, Sean Francis Han. How are you, Sean? Hey, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, I'm wearing a black graphic tee and uh, my pronouns are he, him. So I'm, I'm really excited to get into this one because unlike, the, unlike many of the other uh, interviews that we've done, this is a topic that I feel like a real outsider coming into, right? A lot of the other topics are things that, you know, you kind of get acclimated to in activism, climate change and uh, uh, trans rights and things like that. But, you know, FGC, female genital cutting, is not something that you hear about a ton in Singapore. So I think this is going to be something that's quite interesting, quite outside of my usual sphere of comfort. And that's why I'm really glad that we have two guests here today. Those are Saza and Shah. Would you like to go ahead and introduce yourselves and the work that you do? Sure. Hi, so I'm Saza. Uh, I'm wearing a red dress and a uh, gold necklace, and my pronouns are she and her. And we have Ensha and I, um, we are in an F and the FGC working group in Singapore. And this is one of the first kind of concerted efforts to end the FGC. And we're really excited about it. We've made some headway here and there. And we really hope uh, for this cut to end completely in Singapore. Hi, I'm Shah. Uh, my pronouns are she and her. Um, I'm wearing a yellow blouse. And together with Saza, um, we started the NFGC Working Group. So, I mean, before we get into, you know, the technical details of this, I actually just want to ask, you know, in, in, in my research, and as per what PJ mentioned just now, a lot of human rights activists, Western human rights activists, they term it female genital mutilation rather than female genital cutting, which is the term that uh, you use. So... Why, why the difference here? What, what's the significance of this different nomenclature? 
I guess um, female genital cutting is less value-laden mm-hmm. as compared to mutilation. And so when we speak about it in Singapore with people in power, with other with people who agree with this cut, mm-hmm. they prefer using the word cutting mm-hmm. because then there's no there's not so much negative value judgment. Okay. And we accept it because we, we want to move the conversation beyond semantics. We don't want to argue about the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. We want to go into, you know, what are the actual causes of FGC in Singapore? How do we end it? Mm-hmm. So what exactly is female genital cutting? What does it comprise of? What is the practice? Yeah. Okay, so according to the World Health Organization, mm-hmm. uh, their, uh, their classification of female genital cutting slash mutilation, um, there are four types. So type one is any cutting or um, removal or injury to the clitoral hood mm-hmm. or the clitoris. Mm-hmm. Uh, type two is um, any injury to the labia... Mm-hmm. Um, menorah, mm. and then type three would be infibulation, mm. um, or also known as pharaonic circumcision, where um, most of the genitalia is cut away and then sewn together okay. and then closed. So there will be just like a small hole left. Um, type four is anything else that falls outside of the mm. uh, the type one, two, and three. Mm. So like anything to do with pricking, swabbing, um, scraping. Mm. Um, it also includes like the symbolic forms of um, cutting mm-hmm. which is just placing a knife there and um, just saying some prayers or there's also a practice where they place like a piece of turmeric or ginger at the genital area and they cut that instead mm-hmm. so there's mm-hmm. not no actual cutting being done okay um, so I just want to back up here a bit mm. do you have an organization a sort of front-facing organization you know what un- un- under what banner do you do your work so we don't have a formal organization yet, mm-hmm. um, but we are a collective. So okay. we're a group of uh, mainly Muslim women, mm-hmm. and we come together because we're very invested to see this cut end. Right now, we're not public facing, yeah. uh, but we're getting there. So we're coming up with our publicity, our marketing materials, and hopefully soon, hopefully by six February, mm-hmm. we'll be more public facing. All right, nice. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm thinking now, sort of like. What, what, what are some of the justifications or reasons that, that one might give for, for FGC? Okay, so we have um, religious reasons, mm-hmm. cultural reasons, and medical reasons, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And, and I'm sure like these reasons differ across the world, right? Yeah. In, in yeah. my research, I've, I've seen that you know, it's practiced all over the world, and I, I'm sure for a plethora of different reasons, but what are the main ones that are given, at least in Singapore? So in Singapore, if I can start with maybe the religious reasons, um, some people believe that it is part of, um, how does it, like the hygiene, like rituals to do with hygiene Mm -hmm. um, in Islam. So they would cite, you know, certain scriptures um, or to to justify that this is um, an Islamic practice. And if you don't cut away the littoral hood then it's very difficult to keep clean and when you are not physically clean you cannot be ritually clean and that means everything else that you do is not valid Mm. in a religious sense Mm. yeah and I think culturally as well this is a long-standing tradition Uh, we're not sure exactly when it came to this area Uh, but we knew we know it was Mm -hmm. pre-islamic the cutting was already happening and a lot of people, it runs through a matrilineal kind of lineage. Mm-hmm. And so usually the grandmother or the mother would tell the daughter to cut her daughter and the granddaughter. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so it's usually kind of pressure from mm-hmm. the older generation which causes people to do this cut. There is not so much critical thinking about it. Uh, it's usually done with something called... Uh, so this cut is in the Muslim community can also be known as Sunat Perempuan, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of people think is then linked to Sunat Lelaki, which is male circumcision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why the, the re- some of the reasons for hygiene are also simply kind of replicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what's the situation like regarding... FGC in Singapore, in Singapore. right? I, mm. I get it's it's kind of difficult to pinpoint a date where it reached our shores, mm. but you know, um, has it? How 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 has it evolved over the years? Yeah. Okay, so um, in around probably maybe a century ago, right? Mm. It used to be done on teenagers or just before you reach adolescence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it functioned as a rite of passage into adulthood, um, which was the same as uh, male circumcision. Yeah. So it would, um, there will be a lot of like um, celebration around it, you know, um, to indicate that now you're a member of the community. Mm. Um, in our time, so wait now, twenties and thirties, um, it's usually done when you're less than a year old, mm. and. In, it's also done at the doctor and not mm. traditionally by a midwife. Mm. So when I was young and my sister was cut, uh, so that was 35 years ago, it was a traditional midwife that came from Malaysia. Mm. So after uh, Malay women gave birth, there will be a woman that comes to give postpartum care. She will do like massage and mm. prepare herbs for the mother and she would also do the sunat for mm-hmm. the baby. So the baby would just be like a few weeks old and then, um, yeah, of course she would be using, I guess, a razor blade or yeah, something, um, yeah. some kind of blade, a bamboo blade. Mm. Um, but now, um, so I'm a parent of two kids and my peers, they bring their um, girls who are maybe a few weeks old, a few months old and they bring them to the doctor. So currently in Singapore, they're it can only be done at a few um, private GP clinics. Okay. As a historian, I'm very curious about this change uh, from you know something that seems to be very public, uh, very cultural, uh, applied to teenagers so coming of age, and just a hundred years ago, and then today it's something very uh, clinical, you know, very private, and applied to babies. And I'm just wondering why, if you know why this has changed it because it does remind me of how um, cultural and religious practices have changed throughout the Malay archipelago or indeed throughout the world where there was interactions with um, colonial governments and then post-colonial nation building governments and then um, the interaction with modern, oh, sorry, well, I, I don't know modern is the right word, but Western medicine and this desire to be accepted or, or fit into that context and justify in that context. So if you look at cultural practices in Eastern Indonesia and their transformation under the uh, first Sukarno and Suharto and uh, the arrival of a lot of, uh, um, you know, foreign medical, Western medical uh, techniques, um, and the change in, in sort of uh, practices there. Um, is this uh, something similar? That, is it because of, of you know, wh- wh- why, why the big change? Okay, so actually in my 
full-time job, I actually researched on maternity care in Singapore and how it has changed and also how women navigate maternity care. And in Singapore, the situation was that we used to have traditional midwives and then it was the colonial government that did start to regulate the traditional midwives. Um, the, they started a midwifery school where the, there would be government midwives trained in Western biomedicine and so slowly they were phasing out the traditional midwives through a system of like certifications and exams. So slowly the traditional midwives who were also doing the SUNAT, um, the FGC, uh, they were also phased out. And then, I mean, it, it became like um, along, I guess, with modernization as well, you know, people were, were, were more concerned about how practices could, could be more sterile, more hygienic. And we see the same thing happening for uh, male circumcision as well. The trend is the same. Um, it's done at clinics, hospitals, and done when they are younger and younger. So sometimes just a week old as well. So it, it actually has gone on the same um, trends. Is there a reason why the age at which this happens has been going down? Yeah, the, the assumption is that if the child is young enough, mm. there's less trauma. Because then remember. the child can't remember. Ah. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. so the in, there's an inherent acknowledgement that this is a very traumatic experience. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's like a subliminal one. Right, right. But and and in in the past, like the trauma, like for for male circumcision, um, you know, I from um, what I've, I I know read that it's the trauma is part of the coming of age. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you're supposed to embrace the pain. Mm. Um, but it seems like that's not the case here mm. where the trauma is something to be avoided in male circumcision the trauma is still something to be celebrated yeah. uh, it's something to be proud of but for female circumcision I think with the control of female sexuality within the patriarchy that female sexuality is just something that people want to avoid acknowledging at all and so that's why it's become so quiet and so hidden actually we missed out just now when we were talking about the reasons like why people do it right mm. so culturally mm. um people believe that it will reduce uh, the female libido. Mm -hmm. Like the, the girl will not be like a wild woman. Mm -hmm. So that's the cultural reason, but it's also mixed in with religion yeah. because we have religious authorities also give that reasoning, mm -hmm. um, although it's not found in any scripture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, just, just a curious question here, but is that accurate? Is that scientifically accurate? Does it achieve those ends? So it's <laughs> Does any of the four types of, yeah. of FGC achieve that, that No, because the, your sexual desire lies in your brain, yeah. not in your private parts. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, uh, that's okay. Actually, so that's quite, that, if you think mm. about it, right, uh, people who have had their genitals removed, whether through deliberately or through accident, they still have, uh, that, that is recorded, right? That they still have libido, they still have a sex drive. So mm. it's actually... The, the counterfactual is easily proved mm -hmm. throughout, you know, through, well, because it's documented. Mm. I, I mean, yeah. okay, that, that brings me to, to, to a question about, you know, what, what are the physical, emotional, and psychological effects um, of FGC? Uh, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm imagining physically, I'm, I'm thinking probably there, there are a bunch, right? But then also there's the emotional and psychological trauma uh, as well as sort of the weight, I think, of knowing that, you know, your sexuality is everybody's business and needs mm. to be controlled in this very, very 
blatant way, right? So can you share more about the the, the physical, emotional, and psychological um, effects of FGC? Yeah. I can go through the physical sure. ones? Okay, so in Singapore, we do usually type 1, mm-hmm. which is um, <clears throat> the injury or the cutting or the removal of the clitoral hood or the clitoris itself. Uh, so physically, the harms would be scarring, uh, the risk of uh, forming keloid scars, mm-hmm. uh, which women of colour are more prone to as well. Mm-hmm. So um, where the scar will keep growing well until you're an adult. Mm-hmm. And it is documented in the medical journal that uh, that the keloid scar can actually grow to cover the vaginal opening as well. And mm-hmm. that, of course, it will impact um, your reproductive health. Um, there's also like, Cysts can form abscesses, um, hemorrhage, especially if you do it on a baby and you don't know the medical conditions of the baby. Um, mm-hmm. They can hemorrhage to death. So death also is one of the side effects. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, just to clarify, um, in case anyone doesn't know, keloid, what is a keloid? So keloid is um, scar tissue that is inflamed and it continues to grow uh, throughout your life. And, and you can treat it with like injections of steroids to okay. flatten it. Um, babies' brains at such a young age are also not developed enough to understand or to process pain in the same way that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so this can lead to a, a negative impact in con- cognitive brain development. Mm-hmm. So there are also studies um, documented in medical journals that any kind of stress uh, before the age of one um, or at any young age mm-hmm. um, it will create like this, you know, stress response in the nervous system and the body can remember that until you're an adult. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most kind of um, problematic issues with this is that we don't know. A lot of people, a lot of Muslim women don't know what was done. Mm -hmm. A lot of Muslim women don't know it even happened. Mm -hmm. So I was cut when I was a baby by a traditional midwife, but I only found out when I was 20 years old, accidentally. Uh, and so this has impact on my reproductive health, on my physical health, because these are things which I cannot tell the doctor. My parents don't even know um, what instrument was used to cut, how much was cut. And this is something that we found very, very common. Uh, so we did a pilot study recently mm-hmm. of about 360 Muslim women. And the prevalence rate of FGC in Singapore is 75% what? among <laughs> Muslim women. So it's very, very, very high. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of the responses that we received, about three quarters, they said that they didn't know what instrument was used they didn't know where it was cut yeah. they didn't know what was cut and even when they asked their parents even when they asked their caregivers their caregivers were not able to answer and I think it's this kind of dissonance and this lack of knowledge and ignorance mm-hmm. um, that really kind of makes me personally and also a lot of Muslim women I think very upset about it because mm-hmm. if you don't know what's taken away from you then you can't really solve this issue it's not something that can grow back easily either yeah, I'm. I'm quite surprised because that number might be might well be be higher than it is. Since mm. um, <clears throat> as as you said, um, you you didn't find out until you were much um, you're much older, mm. right? So that number might be well uh, higher. And and on top of that, I think it's quite interesting because we you know I personally I've only heard of FGC in the context of like documentaries or like mm. from Western sources. Um, I had no idea it was it was so prevalent uh, here in Singapore. Like I'm thinking about my Malay and Muslim friends, and I, I had no idea. But anyway, okay, it's not time for me to get shocked. Um, let's move on to uh, you know what are the sort of 
what are the sort of in- interesting intersectional effects that arise from FGC in Singapore? So, you know, just now I sort of, I brought up about how, you know, Western human rights activists or documentarians, they like to go around the world and then discuss uh, FGC. And, you know, it's something that's practiced all around the world. And I'm sure that there are uh, sort of those, there are, there are interesting interaction effects based on the country that it's practiced in, right? So I guess what I'm trying to ask here is, how does FGC in Singapore differ from FGC in other parts of the world? So there's this um, really good documentary actually produced mm-hmm. by a Singaporean named John Chua. The documentary is called uh, Cut, what is it? Exposing uh, FGM Worldwide. <laughs> so he found over 10 years mm-hmm. of making his documentary that FGC is actually practiced on every continent except Antarctica mm-hmm. and that the, the justifications will differ or vary based on the religious context, the social context, and also the income or resource level of the country. So in Singapore, um, we practice mostly type 1. Okay. And it's done at the doctors mm. and when the girl is less than 2 years old. Mm. So a lot of people assume that then that means that, oh, it's all right because this cut is not significant and so therefore it's not harmful. Mm-hmm. You know, it, when, when they compare it, in rel- uh, when they relatively compare it with cuts done in Africa and the Middle East, they say that it's not as bad, therefore it's not mutilation. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that we still have the same issues. We still face the issues of consent. We still face the issues of control of female sexuality mm-hmm. and of human rights, of child rights. Mm-hmm. And of genital autonomy. Mm. Mm. So I so I had a question about um, the the way some of this is described makes me wonder um, w- whether it's it, there's a there's a sort of class aspect um, when you talk about uh, you know in the past uh, you'd have a midwife come and uh, take care of the mother. I assume you'd have to pay the midwife, that there was a cost attached to it, and mm. then you have a big ceremony when you are a teenager to do this, and there's a cost attached to this ceremony. And ceremonies, anthropologically, are often very about displaying status, um, about involving the community in the recognition of a certain um, you know, ritual. And, and uh, does that still continue today? Like, is it more likely that because you have access to uh, healthcare, good, reliable healthcare, that you're able to do this? So you're you're more likely to be, um, you know, in terms of class, upper class, upper middle middle class. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I assume this is not something that insurance will will pay for as part of the of ordinary childbirth. But feel free to correct me. I don't, I don't know. No, so not. is there a class aspect here? Um, I think there is in the sense of um, when parents choose to bring their babies to the doctor. So I'm thinking like, okay, when I was when I was a child, uh, it was it was obviously like a sign of wealth if you could uh, do your circumcision at the doctor. So this was also for boys and girls, and the younger you could do it as well. Um, and today we also see, I think, for boys. Um, if you can't afford it, the circumcision, you can have it done when the boy is older because there are free mass circumcision ceremonies which are also done by doctors. Uh, so for, for female, um, female circumcision or sunat, mm. uh, when before we used to have those celebrations where it's for the whole village to know, right? Okay, we, this girl has done her ear piercing, her sunat and mm. 
teeth filing and everything. Right now, she's part of the community. Uh, now, it becomes more of um, parents do it to show to their immediate family, maybe just their extended family, that I'm, I'm a good parent. I have done this um, for my daughter. Mm. Maybe, you know, probably because of modernization, urbanization, we don't live with such huge communities anymore. So who you are proving it to is just a smaller group. So there's no big celebrations, um, except maybe in like some, there are some ethnic communities in Singapore, right? That mm. have like a big celebration as well. Yeah, uh, there are some ethnic communities which still see this as a rite of passage. And so the doctor might do it to girls who are older, who are seven to nine years old, and they'll dress up very nicely uh, in traditional clothes. And then with uh, many more people in the family would go down with the girl. So, so, I mean, we can't talk about FGC without bringing in the women's rights perspective. So I want to get your take on um, what are the effects of FGC on consent, on bodily autonomy, right? On, you know, that this patriarchal control of a woman's body. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite interesting because most of the time FGC is done by the mother mm-hmm. or it's pushed for by the mother. But of course, this is also still within the patriarchy and it's still because the women are mostly in charge of the children mm-hmm. and the domestic affairs. Sometimes the fathers don't even know it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of consent, of course, the child cannot give consent. There is no consent. Uh, and the fact that the child is not even told about this cut later on when they're older um, also further proves how uh, parents do think that this cut is good for the child mm-hmm. and would just do it without any um, without any reluctance. Mm. So um, what about sort of this idea of controlled and restricted sexuality, right? How does that sort of play out with regard to FGC? I think when people give reasons, whether religious or cultural, that, you know, doing the cutting will help to reduce um, like the libido of the, mm. the girl. Like, I mean, it's just a baby, but you're already thinking about when she grows up. Mm. And it's also sort of this general anxiety, like, you know, I want my child to grow up to be like a, a good and chaste and um, pious uh, Muslim woman. Um, so that, that, uh, that anxiety translates into doing certain rituals, uh, which you hope or you believe will actually achieve your goal. Mm. I think anthropologically as well, um, there's a community anxiety that because women are seen as a moral bearers of society. Mm. And so, you know, if there is a slight chance that this woman is unchaste or this woman is promiscuous, we must nip it at the bud. Uh-huh, pun, uh, not really intended. <laughs> um, and so that's and and so we need to control this woman mm-hmm. right from birth. We mm-hmm. need to control her body and therefore by extension control her. I think if there's anything that is like an actual embodiment of this policing of female sexuality, mm. it would be this. Yeah. Mm. I'm thinking that this would be an, a, a very, very profoundly powerful form of control because you're not just being controlled by one person here. You're being controlled by a community, an ideology, a culture with the force of history behind it. So I think there is a ton of profound power that goes into this. But, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of thinking about how you, you were talking about how this procedure is done largely 
by medical institutions or by medical professionals, right? Mm. And that makes me wonder, sort of, what is the institutional response to this? It seems like there has to be some kind of, like, tacit agreement or a kind of nonchalance in some way by the institutions um, that be, whether that be MUIS or I don't know what other medical institution would be. MOH. Uh, MOH, yeah. yeah, or health promotion board or something i don't know um yeah so so what is that basically what is the institutional response to this i'm sure they know about it what is the Mm. how have the institutions been responding to this issue okay so in our communications with the ministry of health Mm -hmm. uh they uh, frame this as a private Mm -hmm. issue that affects muslims and that that muslim parents have chosen to practice okay do they license uh these doctors who practice the cut yeah, so these doctors are private GPs yeah. who run their own clinics. Mm. Uh, they're obviously regulated under Ministry of Health mm-hmm. uh, as a as a they can practice. They have a license and yeah. everything. Um, but maybe Saza can talk more about the agreement that they have with. Uh, okay, so um, so there's Muiz, which is the Islamic Religious Council of Singapore, mm-hmm. which uh, so in twenty thirteen up till twenty thirteen they had an online FAQ which said that male and female cutting are both compulsory above mandatory under the religion. But uh, after 2013, mm-hmm. this online FAQ was kind of unceremoniously taken down okay. and it was never replaced with any other FAQ mm-hmm. uh, or fatwa or any other religious proclamation by Mu'is. Uh, this is very problematic because when they take it down, it suggests that they no longer agree with this ruling, mm-hmm. right? But not replacing with something else leaves the Muslim community kind of in a bit of a disarray and leaves the Muslim community a bit confused about this cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Mu'is has internally, they have done the research and they have agreed that this cut is no longer necessary as for females, mm-hmm. females uh, FGC. Um, but I think the lack, the reluctance to make it a public stance mm-hmm. is uh, symbolic of unprincipled leadership within the Muslim community mm-hmm. because then leaves the Muslim community kind of just hanging yeah. um, there. At the same time, we also have another actor, which is the Muslim Healthcare Professionals Association. Mm-hmm. So um, there's not much that much information about them online, um, but and but we they do work with Muiz and MOH uh, to take care of the health of Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Muslim doctors are all generally members or registered under MHPA. Mm-hmm the doctors are still very much independent Mm -hmm. and there are no checks and balances. So MHPA, MOH doesn't really check the doctors. Uh, And in my interviews with doctors, they cut different amounts, they use different instruments, they charge different amounts. uh, And in the past, there have been doctors who cut when the girl is seven to nine years old, where clearly she can remember the trauma. Mm. And with any medical procedure, (coughs) there are risks, right? So... Uh, we have um, anecdotal evidence as well of doctors that cut away too much. So instead of cutting the hood or the clitoris, they cut the labia. And of course, when you have a child who's not under any anesthetic mm. and they struggle, mistakes can be made as well. Mm-hmm. No, wait, no anesthetic. Yeah. Why? So one of the reasons is because uh, if the baby is still small, it's very difficult to titrate the right amount of anesthetic. So usually it's not given and also there's this prevalent belief, I don't know why, that newborns don't feel pain, which is not true. (laughs) 
Okay, but then for the older um, recipients, um, we're unsure. Yeah, we're okay. not, but according to our survey, uh, those that remembered mm-hmm. the procedure being done to them, mm-hmm. they remember the pain. So I'm sure there was no anesthetic given either. Not even a local, and I would assume local anesthetic would make sense. But okay, I, I mean, I hope they use it at least use rubbing alcohol to sterilize the area or something. Yeah, I think they do. Okay. Yeah. But what what startles me is in a country which is over-regulated, right? Where everything is so tightly, closely regulated, when the government chooses not to regulate something, it actually sends a message um, that it it doesn't either doesn't know what to do, or it has too many conflicting interests, or it doesn't care. Um, and so, uh, before I ask my question, yeah, clarify, like, um, for for doctors' training, are they taught? any form of formal training. What about male circumcision? Is there formal training for male circumcision? Do you know? I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, but definitely for female, female circumcision, circumcision no. there is no, it does not exist in any medical curriculum whatsoever. So, mm. so even doctors are not really trained to do this then? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They learn it from more senior doctors. Yeah, and from th- what that's why we have the varying like types of cut, yeah. the varying amounts. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable when we say it like this, but mm. it's true. Yeah, from, from what I'm gathering, there are Four, there are four working types and then of course that expands out because type 4 is just miscellaneous types of cuts right and then as you said female sexuality is not something that people want to discuss so I can't imagine that there's like a, a, um, a handbook as to how to do it so I, it's, it's, I think largely it's going to be a cultural thing it's going to be passed down um, from generation to generation so I don't think there's any there wouldn't be any sort of standard procedure, yeah. SOP thing that yeah. would be carried out here. But so, so that brings me back to my question. Why do you think there, there is such a, uh, an absence, this large lacunae of um, you know, response by a government which is famous for wanting to regulate everything and which has taken uh, ostensibly on paper a very mm. um, pro-women's rights stance since the Women's Charter in 1960. I mean, I assume the Women's Charter didn't include anything about this. No. Um, yeah, so so why mm. is there a gap in this in, the, in our government's response? Actually, I think it's interesting you brought up Women's Charter because, you know, it doesn't cover Muslim women. And oh, that's, right, right. that's okay. also, mm. uh, I feel, is like the reason why there's also no regulation on this because mm. it's seen as a Muslim issue mm. and when there are Muslim issues, it's pushed to Mu'is. Mu'is. Yeah. Mm. Um, also, so there was an uh, Australian anthropologist who taught for a little while at NUS. Uh, he's called Gabriel Maranzi, mm-hmm. and he hypothesized about why it's so silent, uh, why the government's response is so silent. And so, if the government were to ban this cut, um, the Muslim they are afraid that the Muslim community would be upset. Okay. But if the government were to allow this cut publicly to mm-hmm. go on. Uh, the international human rights community would be upset. Mm-hmm. And so they don't want to upset both these communities. Well, I mean, never mind about the international human rights community. <laughs> I'm, I'm a Singaporean citizen and I'm upset, right? <laughs> so there's actually uh, a lot of Singaporeans, I think, if the government came out, uh, or at least I, I, I think if they came out to support the cut, we would be upset. Um, but is there evidence to the, uh, on the other side that if they ban the cut... Because there's so many Muslim practices, religious practices, mm. and there's so many uh, Christian practices or, or just simply practices full stop, which are against human rights, which have been banned, right? And why, why is this not in that category, but in this 
vague amorphous category that somehow it's, you know, and as you said, it's not even Muslim, predates Islam. So uh, how does this end up in that category of being Muslim, whereas other things that have been banned are not? I think the fear is that if the government were to ban this cut, it would go underground. And when it does, it might be worse. They might go back to traditional midwives. Parents might choose to bring their daughters to Brunei, Malaysia, Indonesia to have this cut where it's more severe. So there's this, there's this very visceral fear of that happening. But I think it's, um, I think the government's not giving enough credit to the Muslim community. I believe if MOH comes out and say that this cut is medically unnecessary, if Mu'iz comes out and say that this cut is religiously unnecessary, I think I trust that the Muslim community will stop doing this cut. Yeah. Because what we found in our activism is also that when we teach people about the cut, when we teach people uh, that, it's, that it's really unnecessary on all levels, mm -hmm. they come away, you know, not doing it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I kind of think that there's a strong merit in that, in that argument, in that, you know, uh, big institutions and governments coming in and telling us what we can and cannot do is problematic in its, in its own way. But now I'm kind of turning my critical eye towards Muiz. So why has there been such a, a lack of you know, just a definitive statement where really they should be the ones making the definitive statements about what is and isn't permitted. So, so why? Why is that the case? I think maybe, you know, from the religious point of view, mm -hmm. there is a diversity of opinion on this issue. So it's um, for them to come out and say that we take this one opinion and we say that it's forbidden, yes. right? It's haram. Mm. Um, they would I think they think they would be upsetting like other sectors, other other parts of the Muslim population because mm -hmm. the Muslim community is also, it has its own diversity of opinion, diversity of schools of thought, uh, of sects. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that, it's not just on this issue, but other issues as well. Mm -hmm. That failure to take a principled stand mm -hmm. on, on one certain issue. Mm -hmm. uh, I can think of polygamy, for example. We have not banned polygamy, whereas other Muslim countries have banned it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, other countries with Muslim uh, populations. Mm -hmm. I think with a lot of um, institutions as well, mm -hmm. as with a lot of institutions, uh, they are still very much patriarchal. Yes. Um, most of the leadership is men, are men. Um, and so this does not even fall on that radar it's a woman's issue you just have no incentive yeah. to, to speak yeah. up about it alright that's quite unfortunate um, can I ask then you know before we get to I'm sure we're, we're, we're all eager to hear like what we can do together to stop this but um, if I can come back to the international comparative perspective you mentioned this happens on every continent so I imagine it happens in a lot of very different cultures and religious circumstances. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how this happens um, elsewhere, um, especially in, in places like, say, East Asia or South Asia, um, and whether this practice has been successfully abolished in those places or not, or regulated, or what the governments do? So give us some... Because this is clearly not a, you know, we've been talking about this as, as, a, as a, in the Singapore context, as a Muslim issue, but it's not a Muslim issue globally. And there, there are so many different contexts in which it's happening, and there's a whole day against it by the UN, right? It's bad enough that UN has declared a whole day. So can you maybe talk about, a bit about the other contexts and how this is dealt with in other countries or cultures? Should we, should we go nearby? We can go to our neighbour <laughs> first, uh, mm -hmm. Malaysia. 
Okay, so Malaysia, um, I, I think the last five years maybe, uh, also after advocacy from local um, women's groups, uh, their Ministry of Health actually has started sort of reviewing this procedure. So when the baby is brought to the hospital for like the, those, you know, in the first year of life, they have a lot of like newborn checkups, right? Vaccinations and all that. So they check um, if there's any scarring or whatever has been done, uh, if the baby has gone through sunat. So they found that there are 15% of the babies that they cover, like they survey, uh, that do have some uh, significant negative effects. But we don't know what that is yet. Uh, so they do that because in Malaysia, we still have a lot of the traditional midwives who are practicing doing the cut. And so they want to um, make it more um, standardized or medicalized, like here. Right. Uh, you mentioned significant negative effects, but then you said we don't know what, what that is yet. Yeah, so, so the ministry said, uh, the MOH yeah. said that 15% have this significant negative effect, but mm. they, they don't they give, give details. Definition. Mm. Yeah, they don't okay. give details of what is that. Okay, so that's that's Malaysia. They're trying to standardize, they're trying to regulate, right? Okay, uh, what about, you know, Indonesia or, or East Asia or South Asia? Do we have any context there? Mm-hmm. So Indonesia, um, we know that the girls are still being cut around seven, mm-hmm. seven to nine years old. Um, there are big uh, ceremonies done, um, which are like subsidized or free by like the you know, two big Islamic groups there, right? So yeah. they will organize um, like a very, I guess, you know, it's like a fun uh, coming of age thing, um, but not fun, obviously. And they will circumcise like hundreds of girls um, at once. That's I nothing that's is... all throughout the archive because in, in Indonesia is so diverse, right? So mm. uh, is that true in both, say, cosmopolitan Jakarta and, you know, um, like... Sumatra and Sulawesi is it we know for Java at least okay for yeah. Java and then what about Christian Eastern Indonesia Do I don't know anything okay. yeah. so we were talking about how um, you know this issue is a deeply cultural deeply personal one and it happens all across the world right but I'm just wondering you know are there any examples uh, international examples of advances that have been made you know uh, ground that has been gained regarding this issue so um, in the Middle East, there have been some muftis or some clerics mm. who have come out to say that this is unnecessary, this is even uh, haram mm. or uh, not permitted within Islam. And so that's some ground. Uh, there have also been, uh, there are also countries who have banned this cut. Mm-hmm. And so the UK, the US, uh, parts of Europe. But the problem with banning the cut is um, it doesn't mean that it then doesn't happen. Uh, it still happens, uh, and it it requires more of a community shift mm. than it does uh, on a policy level. Mm-hmm. What about like a little closer to home? What's what about uh, Malaysia? How has there been um, advancements on this issue? So there is a local women's group called mm-hmm. Sisters in Islam, yeah. and they organize um, focus group discussions with grassroots women mm-hmm. all over Malaysia. And what they found is that um, when they ask the women, you know, if if you... They explain, like, the harms of the cut, how it's done. So, basically, they try to give as much information as possible. Mm-hmm. Of possible 
harms, benefits, everything. And they found that like half of the women will say like, hold on, I didn't know all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you give me more information? And then the other half says that they will actually still continue to cut no matter what uh, any fatwa or any religious opinion that is given, they will continue to do so because this is part of their culture and part of their religion. So I think, you know, their experience um, helps us learn that we have to approach it from many angles. Mm-hmm. So we need to have that community education approach where we have conversations with parents, mm. uh, conversations with you know grandparents and educate them on what is being done, what are the harms to the child. And then we leave it as like an informed decision. Mm-hmm. So at least know what is happening, you know, if you choose to do it. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're saying that in a religiously and ethnically divided country, there was a public discussion of a controversial religious issue and it didn't lead to riots? (laughs) I think this is going to be news to the PAP. Good golly. Everything they know is wrong. Okay, but seriously, you know, this really shows like the importance of a good public discussion and why um, you, if you just raise awareness and educate people about an issue instead of burying it away, mm. people can come to their own conclusions. Mm. And also that it's not something that's going to be incredibly divisive or, or lead to any sort of conflict, but that people can be very reasonable and, um, you know, and, and come to their own understanding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Am I right to observe also that in, in the Malaysian context, this is a very ground up grassroots um, discussion rather than, you know, leaders of institutions, whether they are um, religious uh, institutions or or governmental institutions. It's not so much happening on an institutional level, but rather on a grassroots level. Yeah, I would say institutionally, the stance is pro-FGC. Okay. Yeah, so we had like... um I think one Aziza said that this is part of Malaysian culture. Mm-hmm. FGM is part of Malaysian culture. So, okay. And then you have their MOH trying to standardize and medicalize the procedure. Um, but there are also religious figures, mm-hmm. such as the Mufti of Perlis, mm-hmm. who came out, you know, he said in an online video, he said that, uh, he actually said it's an issue of consent. Mm-hmm. We do it to our children, but I think it should not carry on. If mm-hmm. the girl wants to do it as an adult, then it is up to her. Okay. So we sometimes I think for people that look up to religious figures, you know, that kind of statement is very powerful. Mm. Because um, locally, when we don't have that principle stand, yes. then it's all, it leaves the floor also open to different religious authorities, different like speakers, in religious speakers and religious teachers to all say different things. Mm. And we know that some of them say that, yes, you still have to cut your girls um, because it was re- it will reduce their libido, that mm. kind of thing. Mm. Which is why this kind of regional solidarity is very important for mm. us. Because if our leaders are unwilling to make a stance, but someone who is also in the Shafi'i school of thought, mm. um, which is one of the religious jurisprudence in, uh, in, in Islam, mm-hmm. uh, if they are willing to make that stance, then we can use that stance when talking to our community. Mm. That brings up a, a, a broader point about Asian or international solidarity on the issue. What does the scene uh, look like there? 
Yeah. Um, so I think there is uh, starting to be great solidarity. Mm-hmm. I think there was international, there is already international solidarity and especially in the Middle East and Africa, mm-hmm. there are very, very strong networks to end FGC. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Asian network to end FGC just started earlier this year or late last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we and, and it's really good because now we are talking to our partners in different countries, activists who are still working on this issue. And we are trying to learn from them, you know, in their context, which is which might have some similarities with ours, mm-hmm. what has worked and what didn't. And we're helping them, you know, test their apps that they started. Um, we, 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 we are on panels together. We attend a conference recently with all of us, the first ever conference for mm-hmm. the Asian Network. Um, it was really inspiring to hear from all these women who work on this issue um, despite whatever obstacles and challenges they face in their own countries. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to bring it back to our Singaporean context. Mm-hmm. What, what have activists or community members uh, achieved or advanced or what is the ground that has been gained locally? No. So I think before our working group, um, there were probably, I think, only three women that I knew that, were, that mm. kept talking about this at least since 2013. So kind of doing things in our own individual way, like writing articles, speaking to um, individuals, um, like I, because I wrote a few articles about it some time ago, I got a lot of DMs, like friends and strangers, you know, asking for advice, asking for help about or information about the issue. Um, and as part of the group that I started, Crit Talk, we have had workshops um, where we discuss this uh, FGC as part of like uh, over the overall issue of consent and bodily autonomy and in that on that small scale we have had like really good success because you know peop- participants after they come to the workshop they say like wow i didn't know all this i don't think i'm going to cut my children hmm. so and then and now we've started the working group and we're planning um quite a few activities mm-hmm. leading up to february 6 mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so um i think we are doing a lot of community awareness mm-hmm. and so we're collaborating with local podcasts like this yes. uh, and also um with those which have a Muslim reach as well, we, mm-hmm. we think that's particularly important because we want to reach um, Muslim new parents especially. Yes. Um, we are also go- we're coming up with an online FAQ mm-hmm. uh, which debunks myths about FGC. And mm-hmm. so 10 myths about FGC and then we debunk each of them. Mm-hmm. And so what we hope is that this will allow people to think for themselves mm-hmm. uh, and to, to not do it. We're also working with MOH, MUIS, and MHPA mm-hmm. uh, to, to try to understand the reluctance uh, to take a public stance against FGC mm-hmm. and to, to convince them that it's okay, uh, that you know, nothing bad will happen. Uh, and, and, and also, yeah, just to find out what, what the concerns are so that we can address them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, so we're doing uh, kind of just general awareness raising. So we, we intend to have an Instagram page um, that's to collate all these resources as well mm-hmm. um, and yeah. to do a video series. And we'll have some panels mm. uh, so with parents who have chosen not to yep. cut the children. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we can have, you know, parents or like people who are questioning it no, at mm. least that's like the first step. You're just like, oh, let me find out more. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully we can give them more information and help them make an informed decision. Mm. Uh, we're also planning like a panel with a medical professional. So mm. we do know, like we do have allies in the healthcare profession because mm-hmm. not 
all of the Muslim healthcare professionals also agree with this. Mm. There's mm. also diversity in the you mm. know in the organization as well. Mm. Yeah. Do you have one more panel? Uh, uh, what was it? The religious leaders. Oh yeah, we're hoping for that. If we can get <laughs> some um, religious leaders to come and at least have a discussion with mm. us, like mm. if yeah. they can, we can ask them questions or. Yeah, at least. <laughs> so, so I'm getting the sense that this is, you know, this is a wonderful but burgeoning and blossoming movement, right? It's been very, it's it's a recent movement. It's mm. something that's kind of just started and people are just coming together to speak about it. But, you know, thus far in your activism, what are some of the biggest hurdles or challenges that you faced? I think the for me, it would be that people think this is not harmful, the use of minimizing language when we talk about sunat mm -hmm. versus FGM. So these people would say like, yes, FGM is horrible, it's terrible, mm -hmm. referring to type 2, type 3, infibulation. Um, but, you know, they will say like, I don't believe our sunat is FGM. Mm -hmm. um, the minimizing language used is like, we say in Malay, you know, like, just cut a little bit. It's just a little bit. Um, so that's, I guess that would be like the mindset, maybe, mm -hmm. that's, that's really hard to mm. push through. It's mm. like an easy knee-jerk response that gets mm. them to shut down um, arguments. And part of it is also this defensiveness, you know, yeah. being a minority population in Singapore mm. where we feel like so many of our other rituals are under attack, our mosque is under attack, whatever mm. it is, mm. our ability mm. to practice our religion, mm. we cannot wear hijab at the workplace. Mm. So it all, I feel like it comes together in this perfect storm of like, yet yeah. one more thing. Yeah. Mm. That's why we feel, you know, the movement is, it, it's really important to have the movement led by us. Yes. You know, who have, who know, who come from the community, we know what it's about and, mm. and yet, you know, we still think like it should not continue. Mm. Yeah. Um, to add on to that, I think the use of minimizing language, uh, not only from our community members, but also from people in power mm -hmm. uh, who refuse to, to kind of see this as a very important issue, re refuse to see this as something very, very harmful and that needed, ne needs to end. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is particularly disappointing yeah. sometimes. Can you flesh that out a little bit? What does that sort of look like? You mentioned people in power. Who, who, are, who exactly are we talking about here? And um, what have they said that, that has been so, you know, problematic? Um, so when so I did a, a, my undergraduate thesis on female genital cutting and it was about mm. exploring the reasons for it and uh, providing recommendations for what can be done to end it. Mm. Um, so I did approach several uh, Muslim ministers mm -hmm. with my thesis and with an invitation uh, for a copy chat about this um, about, about this cut mm -hmm. uh, but the response was very very minimal mm -hmm. uh, the response was um, was either no response at all or that you know we don't want to discuss this uh, even when I was invited to speak about this with um, some Muslim ministers um, the response given to me by the Muslim minister was that if we were to stop this cut mm -hmm. it, it would shut down uh, it, it would piss off a lot of the conservatives uh, and okay. the analogy given was that um, when you close the door and after that you lock it, then you cannot open it easily. So right now we don't want to close that door. Um, so they still want to engage these conservatives and they feel like if they don't, if, if they just ended this cut, it wouldn't engage the conservatives and the conservatives would not support them in other things. Um, which I think is, a, is an assumption 
yeah. uh, that the community is not ready, the community is conservative. And I offered to do a, a survey of all Muslims in Singapore. Mm-hmm. You know, so we can really find out is the community ready? Because mm-hmm. often uh, the argument that we're given is the community is not ready. Yeah. Uh, but what does ready look like? Who defines this readiness? Mm-hmm. Um, and when will we ever be ready yeah. if we don't talk about this? Yeah, and, not, and we yeah. are part of the community and yeah, we are ready. Yeah, so yeah. like, are we not also part of the community? And also, are we not citizens of Singapore who deserve to not have such a thing done? Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm kind and of... what about... Wait, there's one other member of the community we haven't talked about. Our female Muslim president. Have you tried talking to her? Because she may not have legislative authority in any sense, but she has a huge amount of moral authority as president and mm. she can speak out and has spoken out yeah. on you know racial and religious issues, which is actually the chief responsibility of the president nowadays, given that so many other things, including financial issues, have been cut. So um, have you tried talking to her? Maybe I haven't tried hard enough. I've, I've just emailed. Mm. Um, maybe, I, maybe I can try through other means. I'm right. not sure what. Maybe you can stand outside the Istana with a smiley face. <laughs> no, no, don't, don't do that. With a cut vulva. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm very curious about this. So I'm, I'm just wondering, is this a, a uniquely Singaporean response here? Because I'm thinking it sounds, gee, you know, it just sounds awfully like the way that the rest of Singapore is, that um, whenever change or human rights is brought up, the idea here is it'll lead to X, Y, and Z. We don't want to do this because it's going to disengage a a conservative sector of society. Um, It's never about, well, let's have that discussion though and see where it goes. Like, let's get the different voices together and see what grounds we can make. It's always about, we need to do this or don't do it. And then here are the ramifications. Therefore, for pragmatic reasons, we don't do this, right? Like it's all hypothetical. Yeah, yeah. exactly, right? And it sounds uh, like a bizarrely Singaporean thing to me because I can't imagine that if you were a Muslim scholar or you know somebody with this kind of institutional power that you would care all that much you know because you you know uh, you know the philosophy you know the ideology you've studied this stuff you know just putting your voice out there shouldn't be too much of a big issue but it seems to be in Singapore that it is a big issue that the pragmatics is considered before the ideology or the philosophy um, so is, do you think it's a it's a Singaporean phenomenon or is this how it is across the world? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can imagine. I I feel like it does happen in in, in, other, countries. in other countries as well. Okay. Um, but maybe not at the same uh, intensity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also because of our education system, right? Where yeah. we where critical discourse is not encouraged, mm-hmm. and so. Um, when the government doesn't allow it, then people are not willing to, on their own perhaps, yeah. create this critical discourse. Mm-hmm. Or creating this critical discourse is very difficult yeah. um, to, to engage other people about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... But uh, the good side of that though mm-hmm. is that because, you know, we are all so... We are all raised and socialized to be so obedient to authority mm-hmm. that if you did have a strong opinion mm-hmm. from top down... Mm-hmm it might actually just stop a lot of people from, mm. from doing yeah. it. Yeah. Like yeah. you had right. your religious leader, you yeah. had your MOH, yep. and you had some kind of ban, and then it's <laughs> like, all right, well, <laughs> let's yeah, not do it. There's just something very odd to me about a religious leader or somebody in, a, in that position of power deferring to 
the community is not ready, you know, because these are these are supposed to be sort of larger issues that do not, you know, that aren't concerned with pragmatism, right? Uh, these are religious, they're supposed to be timeless and eternal and universal, but somehow deferring to a conservative sector of the community seems a bit odd. You know, I but gave you the example of polygamy. It's only practiced by like 0.1% of men, Muslim mm-hmm. men in Singapore, but they will not ban it. Yeah. Um, because of this 0.1% and the reason is the community is not ready. So okay. we've heard this reason many times before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the issue of marital rape as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in that the, the, commun- the government often says the community is not ready for marital rape to be repealed and it took 20 years mm-hmm. um, for the penal code. So yeah, this is an argument that is often used uh, and, and, it's a very, and it's an argument that I think government hides behind mm. uh, because it's not easy to prove or disprove. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. Well, yeah, I think also, you know, Singapore is a bit unique. I mean, I've talked a bit about these institutional factors in, in my work and other podcasts, but it's, it's rare to find around the world a country which is both wealthy and authoritarian and extremely small which then enables the government to get a lot of things done uh, very easily, uh, but also that because of the, the tiny size means that there is no... It can crowd out everything else. It can use its overwhelming uh, presence in the economy, in politics, in social, civic, cultural spaces to assert its dominance. Mm-hmm. Right. In, in most comparable societies, you'd have so much diversity just because either the government isn't big enough to do these things or wealthy enough to throw its weight around mm. or the sheer size of the country enables uh, you know, m- more space. Mm-hmm. And if you look at comparable societies, um, definitely there's way more diversity in terms of opinion, in terms of space for people to organize and... Um, and Singapore is just it's just kind of unique in that way where we're both our tiny size and geographic location, you know, is a huge strength and uh, imposes limitations on us. Mm. Mm. I think that's it though. Uh, for me personally, I would not want a kind of heavy-handed institutional response to this. Mm-hmm. I don't actually want the government to ban this cut mm. uh, or to criminalize it. I don't for me, uh, this is not representative of the working group, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't think we should use the criminal justice system or, mm-hmm. the, or the penal system because uh, I think those are inherently problematic and uh, for a mi- especially for a minority practice, I don't think we need further regulation. Mm. Uh, instead, I think what we need is simply leadership. Yes. Yeah. Sure. I, I tend to agree because I think community engagement, that awareness raising and information and education um, actually is quite effective it's just how do you scale it up because we don't want to reach everyone yeah Mm. yeah i think that makes a lot of sense you know we have a government also which loves to ban things or regulate things or pass laws which gives it massive amounts of arbitrary power Mm. right for example pofma Mm. but it doesn't actually change the underlying circumstances because people aren't then educated Mm. or become more literate about the issues at hand Mm and have no opportunity to evolve both individually and as a society. You know, we've banned, what, spitting, or we've banned not flushing public toilets, or, you know, we've banned uh, all sorts of crazy things which we think um, will lead to an end to bad behavior. But bad behavior continues. 
because you also need to educate people about your roles and responsibilities as, as citizens, about human rights, you know, about your place in society, your uh, responsibilities to your fellow man, and, and advance us collectively as uh, culturally, as a civilization, right? Banning stuff is just, you know, an act of, of, of violence, you know, in the, mm. the political sense. Mm. Um and it doesn't change mindsets. And so I think you're taking the harder, but uh, long-term, more long-lasting route of trying to change people's minds and making something uh, so abhorrent that people don't practice it mm. rather than simply banning it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think we've kind of nicely walked into our standard last question, which is what is your theory of change, you know, which we... Um, asked all of our guests, but um, I think the question is especially interesting this time here because we're looking at an issue that is so complex and multifaceted that it becomes difficult to articulate what this change should look like. On one hand, you know, it, it, we know that it's going to be an act of violence if the big health authorities come in and make a ban or if the government comes in and bans it. And But simultaneously, could it also be problematic if, let's say, the religious uh, authorities come in and say, nope, this is bad, no more? You know, does that create a culture in which uh, the community is just always taking a directive from those on top? Uh, what do you all think about that? And, and if that's the case, then what do you think change should look like or could look like in Singapore? I think it needs to be a mixture of everything mm. um, because we do have, I think, some section of the community that does look to the religious leadership. That's mm. why we have people calling in into the office of the Mufti mm. asking, is it okay to sunat mm. my daughter? Mm. They are asking because they are also looking for that answer mm. and based on the answer, then they will act. Mm. And then, you know, on the other hand, definitely you still have people, if you ban everything and they're still going to do it, mm. they're going to seek out somebody to do it. Mm. Um, but then I believe like if you educate, if you treat like the parents with respect and educate them and give them information in a non-judgmental way and just look, I just want to give you information and you can ask me questions. I also want to understand where you're coming from. Why do you do it? Um, from my experience, that works quite well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is one debate that we face uh, within the working group and that is to medicalize or not. Mm. So right now it's already medicalized, right? Uh, but if we medicalize it further, if we make it even safer, uh, then, the, then this cut might not end. Mm. It will just continue in this medicalized, safer format. Mm -hmm. uh, so should we push for, for it to end completely mm -hmm. or should we push for further medicalization? Because pushing for it to end completely might take a longer time. Mm. And in that process, more baby girls will be hurt. Yes. Uh, but medicalization would mean that maybe baby girls will be hurt less, but in the long term, all baby girls might be hurt. Mm. Um, so maybe we can elaborate more about the medicalization, like what does okay. that entail? Yeah, yeah. sure. So uh, we, we thought of a few, uh, we brainstormed a few steps that can be taken. Uh, mm. We've done MOH's job for them. Mm. Uh, so one thing that we thought of, and, and this was uh, Shah's experience, is the tongue tight surgery. And so... Uh, so so, so yeah. um, my children were born with a tongue tie. Uh, that means like the, the frenulum in the, between the gum and the lip is very tight. So it affects breastfeeding. So I, because I had the experience where it has to be very tight. 
and there's also four types. Oh. <laughs> Type one, two, four. <laughs> so, uh, it so basically the baby is not able to make a suction and uh, drink at the breast. <laughs> uh, so we when you cut that 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 cartilage, that skin, that very tight skin off, then it frees. It gives more movement <laughs> to the lip. So when 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 um so when my daughter was born like two and a half years ago. I saw, I know she, she, we tried breastfeeding. It was really painful. It couldn't work. So I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to cut it before I suffer for another 10 weeks. So we went to the doctor and what they do is, you know, as with any medical procedure, you will have first have a consultation mm. where they assess the child and, and look. And then if it's determined to be something that's needed, then you come back, you make an appointment for the actual surgery. Mm. So we suggested, um, you know, MOH could maybe uh, institute this kind of like two-step process mm. as they do for every medical procedure. You cannot mm. just come mm. in and like, I want to do this, right? Mm. You still have, mm. you must have a consultation. Mm. So if let's say we had that first consultation for the cutting and mm. then they could assess, does the baby have a clotting disorder? Is there any risk like she could hemorrhage or bleed or mm. whatever it is? Mm. Um, I mean, we're only talking about like the physical aspects, right? Because mm. obviously you still have the psychological harm to it. Yeah. Mm. Um, but at least you have like, all right. And then if the doctor could give information, this is how I'm going to do it or whatever and then give the parents some time to think about it mm. and come back another day. Mm. Maybe we could have some harm reduction mm. as the short-term goal mm. with the long-term goal as well being like we want it to stop mm. completely. Mm. Yeah, see, uh, because uh, even for abortion, there's a 48-hour waiting period as well. Mm -hmm. The counselling, then there's the waiting period. And so we think this is something that can be easily instituted mm -hmm. by MOH. Uh, we are willing to also help um, produce a brochure or pamphlet that you know, we can pass to the parents so that they can read it on their own uh, and can figure out and think independently whether this is necessary. Um, we are also very happy to help MUIS craft a statement, if they so wish, uh, to come out with an FAQ, another FAQ, or just a public statement about this cut. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can do the same with MOH. Um, so we are open uh, and we think it is effective to work with um, certain government stakeholders for mm -hmm. this cut because they will have a wider reach than we ever could. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. what about the, the rest of us? Mm -hmm. So, you know, as we've had a whole succession activist in here and I always feel like as a, you know, a straight male Chinese, you know, I, I ostensibly have very little stake in a lot of the issues that are brought up. Uh, but I want to be an ally and I want to help. Um, so as someone who's not Muslim and not part of your religious or ethnic or linguistic community, what can I do to assist without being accused of, you know, either causing trouble in a, for, you know, in a, in religious, mm. religious fault lines and all that nonsense or... Uh, you know, getting in trouble. I mean, of course, me personally, I'm in plenty of trouble. But like, if someone else was listening who uh, was not part of your community, what could they do to to assist in ways that would be uh, racially and religiously and culturally appropriate and sensitive? Yeah, I think you can focus on the medical harms, the issue of consent and sexuality, because those are uh, timeless and those are things that span all cultures. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, a very tangible call to action could be to write in to the Ministry of Health and also say that you are you recognize and acknowledge this cut and you know it's happening in Singapore and you find it very problematic for a cosmopolitan global modern city uh, to be harming baby girls. Mm. Uh, I think this 
this show of solidarity and allyship will be quite important so that uh, the government cannot dismiss this as a minority Muslim issue and uh, like drugs and diabetes, right? But to see it as a Singaporean issue and a Singaporean, uh, Singapore harm. Um, yeah. And I think if you have like friends or family, whoever, mm. um, who you know want in more information, because yeah. right now there isn't anything mm. like published, I guess, and something available online that yeah. they can read, um, you can direct them to us. We can provide more information mm -hmm. to them as well. Yeah, I, th I think this is really important. You know, it's um, the, the, the point I wanted to make earlier, actually, which I didn't, um, is that um, how a society treats the... Uh, most vulnerable among us is really indicative of, of the health, of the quality of our society. So I think we all have a stake in this. Mm -hmm. So even though someone like myself might ostensibly not have any sort of stake in it, I think it it really is important that we all speak up on issues like this. And, you know, is there anyone more vulnerable than a little baby girl? You know, th these are... And, and how we're treating them really says a lot about us as, as, a, as people, as human beings, as society. So I, I, I want to emphasize to anyone listening, I think this is really important. We all have a stake in um, trying to, to change and hopefully end this practice. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to ask like, so one final question here, which is, you know, this has been an absolutely enlightening uh, discussion. We've been talking about it, uh, you know, from this sociological, anthropological uh, lens, you know, speaking about it almost as if we're in the third person, but I want to ask each of you personally, right? How do you personally relate to your activism? How do you personally see yourselves as agents of change? Well, I think I try my best to embody mm. what it is I'm advocating for. Um, so I didn't cut my children. Mm. I have a boy and a girl. Both are not cut. Mm. Um, I talked to them about it, actually. My older one, um, he's six. And, you know, I, 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 he's been listening about me talk about this all the time, right? He's in on my meetings. Mm. <laughs> he's, like, watching the videos. Mm. And I explained to him um, that, you know, people do this to their children because they believe it will make them um, good, right? And his answer to me was actually, like, but God doesn't care, right? That you cut your <laughs> penis or not, right? Mm. So I was like, yes, thank you. <laughs> but, um, because for us, you know, it's something that's completely volunteer-driven. Um, but I feel, I mean, passionate is such a cliche word, you know, but that's um, seeing my children. I do, I do want to have a world for them where mm. they grow up healthy and safe and, you know, like... Um, they can they can also make the world better for us. Mm. Um, I think my stake in this topic is very personal uh, mm. because I felt very, very violated when I found out that I was cut. Um, ever since then, like, okay, my anger has waned a bit, uh, but I think it has translated into action. And so uh, I think I do want, I do not want other baby girls to kind of go through the same thing. Mm. Um, and yeah, since this issue is very personal and, and also like, um, I do, I, I feel like I have the privilege, uh, I have the, the vernacular, the educational, uh, linguistic privilege to talk about this and to maybe talk in a way that, um, stakeholders that we are talking to will listen to a bit more because of elitism. Um, so I feel I do have a responsibility to also then 
continue talking about this and continue advocating for it until it ends. Mm. I think like what you said, you know, being able to give sort of that broader perspectives, um, it's very helpful because we have, when when we do see, you know, in the media, someone mm. talking about this issue, mm. um, but they, they they talk it from their, they, they speak from their personal experience, right? But because this is something which is not linked to, for example, like a rite of passage, there's nothing to link it to. It's just like, I know I, I went through it and I felt like this. Mm. And then people feel alone because they don't mm. know. They don't know that actually like there are other people going through it or that there's a whole other, there's a whole movement like mm. going on, not mm. just in Singapore, but um, regionally or globally. Mm. So that, yeah, that, I hope this podcast helps. Mm. <laughs> okay, so I think that brings us to the end of, of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Shah, Zaza. Uh, I've learned so much and, you know, I, I feel like um, I really had my eyes open to to something which I knew very very little about, and I think um, you know for this it's 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 such a um, a clear issue. You know, it's unlike say climate change where it's so massive that you're intimidated by the sheer size of it. This is very clearly defined, mm-hmm. and I think that everyone out there, I hope all our listeners uh, and people watching on on the video will be inspired to. Uh, take action and you know even if it's just expressing opposition to this and expressing a clear opinion to um, policymakers stakeholders and to the rest of your community about this so thank you for joining us today and sharing this mm-hmm. and sharing all this and of course thanks as always to sean uh great questions mm-hmm. as always my co-host uh, thanks for coming on mm-hmm. and thank you our listener for joining us um and do join us again next time on a political agenda and as always if you like what you've heard if you uh, want to support our work please do go to newnarrative.com slash join or donate at newnarrative.com slash donate so thank you very much and see you next time